Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons, where you learn how to love what is good and become what you love. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about media, culture, and the art of being human. We're more than a subscription company. Love Good is a movement of artists, patrons, and young people who believe in the power of beauty to change the world. And we're so pumped you're here. Hey, everyone. I'm really pumped about what is about to to happen here in the Love Good podcast today. I'm sitting down in just a few moments with someone who has quickly become a hero and I hope more and more a friend as well. His name is Andrew Peterson. He's an author, a singer-songwriter, an absolutely brilliant guy who's also just full of faith and authenticity. And, you know, in a matter of gosh, 35, 40 minutes. This is a longer episode than usual. You know, we were able to unpack a lot about human suffering and the reality of depression and, you know, the need for being connected to a place and the great joy of family and really especially tapping in to our unique and unrepeatable purpose in the world. And, you know, whether or not we're selling out arenas or homesteading, you know, 30 minutes outside, of a big city like Nashville, the whole point of this life is to tend the garden that we've been entrusted with well. I'm so pumped to share this conversation with you. It's really inspired me listening back to it. And uh, Andrew is somebody that we've not only featured most recently in our our fall package to patrons, his Wing Feather Saga, the, the debut book from that series was given to all of our patrons back in September. We're also super pumped to make an announcement about halfway through this podcast episode that has to do with Andrew and our December winner package going out to patrons as well. So stay tuned for that. In just a few moments, I'll be back with Andrew Peterson. Well, I do are the two most famous last words, the beginning of the end. But to lose your life for another I've heard is a good place to begin. Because the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. And I believe it's an easy price for the life that we've found And we're dancing in the minefields We're sailing in the storms And this is harder than we dream But I believe that's what the promise is for That's what the promise is for Andrew Peterson, welcome to the Love Good Studio. Thank you for having me. We are really excited. I certainly am and have been kind of hoping for this moment for many months now. Long before I even knew you as an author, I knew you as an artist. I had seen your Christmas show a couple of times. Many of our patrons out there would be very familiar with who you are, if if for no other reason, by association with many of the other artists that we've worked with, that we've promoted through the years. Before we dive into any of that, I actually have some really random questions that they're coming straight off of the interview questions that people like Google, from what I understand, Trader Joe's, and others are constantly asking their new employees. So let's see oh, if I yeah, got this I'm memorized. So curious. The first is, believe it or not, Fortune 500 standard, if you're waking up tomorrow morning with the superhero power of choice, which would it be and why? <laughs> okay. I would say my brain went straight to flying or invisibility because that's the big debate, you know, which one would you choose? Yes. I, I, 
I would just say that I already have a superpower. Uh-huh. Can I can I use that as my answer? Let's hear it. Yeah. My superpower is that I have lightning fast reflexes without meaning to. Like taekwondo so, style. Like, well, it's like there will be times when like I'll bump a glass off the table, and, and catch I'll it. catch it, and I'll be like, "Jamie, did you see that?" And she'll be like, <laughs> "I saw it. It's amazing." And I'll put it back in the like, <laughs> like this amazing like thing where she's joked about the fact that she's like, "Are you really like in a Mission Impossible spy?" Crazy. And this is like how you're. The problem is the superpower only works because I'm a klutz. Yeah. Like, so it balances itself out that I only catch things that I have dropped. <laughs> like, I've never, I've never, like, rescued a kid from a train, you know, train tracks or, like, done anything that actually did anybody any good other than catching the pin as I dropped it because I'm a klutz. Yeah. So, I do have a superpower, but I'll, I'll, it, it's only because I have a super weakness. I love it. It sounds like a hyper-focused sort of ninja skill. You've yeah. Got I'm waiting. There. It's like, it's latent. One yeah. day, one day. It's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly this is great this is so revealing so this next question i probably wouldn't ask many other people but i think you're going to get it you basically get to plant a tree you know in in your backyard a hundred years ago in time and it is now like in full flourishing in its perfect form Mm -hmm. Uh, which tree would you have chosen a sugar maple Tell me, tell me about that. I would say sugar maple for a couple of reasons. We moved, we live not far from here, South Nashville and on some acres. And when we first bought the place 12 years ago, it was in the summer and my wife and I could not wait for the leaves to change. And when autumn came, there were no pretty trees. (laughs) It was like, they were all hackberries. You know what hackberries are? They're they're like the kind of... They're pretty trees, I guess. They can be really pretty, but they, they're kind of junk trees. They just kind of grow pretty wild around here, but they just turn brown and kind of wither and fall yeah. off. And, and there were a bunch of cedars. And I found one small sugar maple in the woods. Sugar maples are like native to this part of Tennessee. So there are certain places where you can find huge ones. And so there's a sugar maple on our neighbor's property that I found in the woods. And I thought, how do you make maple syrup? And I went and Googled how to make maple syrup and I bought the spiles. Have you ever done this before? (laughs) No, no, no. So there's this little piece of metal that's like a a spout almost. So you just go to a sugar maple. It's got to be at least like a, you know, foot wide circumference. And you drill a hole into it and you hammer this the spout into it and you hang a bucket from it and you come back tomorrow and the bucket will be full of sap. Crazy. But what most people don't know, which I didn't know, is that sugar maple sap, it's that kind of tree, it's the easiest to make sweet syrup out of because there's a higher sugar content in it. But sugar maple sap looks like water. Like it's sloshy. It's not sticky at all. So in order to get the maple syrup from the big bucket of watery sap is you have to boil it down to one fortieth. <laughs> so for every gallon, or every it takes forty gallons of sugar maple sap to make one gallon of sugar maple, which is why real sugar maple syrup costs so much money. Is Dang. because it's like so. I did it. I boiled it all down to this like you know. I got I had this much and I had this much, just enough for like one day's worth of pancakes. But it came from the ground outside our house, it's and amazing. then. My neighbor noticed that there were buckets hanging from his tree. I hadn't asked him his permission. <laughs> and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh. I got so excited about the process that I didn't want him to say no, that I was like, he won't care. He'll never see it. It's way deep in the oh, woods. Man. And anyway, he like was like, tell me about how, how was it? And I told him. So then we each had buckets hanging from the sides of his tree. The point is... I would love to have like 15 sugar maple trees on my property, Dang. not just for the syrup, but because they're so beautiful. They're, yeah. It's like his tree in the woods is always the most beautiful tree in the fall. Now, tell me a little bit about your Shire. I know it's got a special name. I know that there's a lot of 
yeah, just heart and desire put into mm-hmm. the land upon which you live. And I mostly know this through mutual friends like Scott Mobile. There's something very special about your homestead. Since mm-hmm. we're kind of chatting about it, tell us, tell yeah, us yeah. more. So I love Scott, by the way. I'm hoping to hang out there with him very soon. We So the story is I read Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Mm. Don't know if you've read much Wendell Berry, but it's a... Uh, if you guys at home don't know who he is, he's a Kentucky farmer who's also a poet, an essayist, and a novelist. And he's been writing for years about the importance of place and community. You know, since the 60s, he's been kind of like waving his hands and saying, the way we're doing this is wrong. Mm. There's a better way. And so finally people are listening, Yeah, I think, now that he's 84, I think. <laughs> anyway, I read Jaber Crow, and it made me so hungry for a place that I could love. And and at the time I was living in a little subdivision house. Right. We were doing our best. It's not like living in a subdivision house is terrible. I mean, a lot of people it's 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 great. But there's a way to live in a subdivision that that makes you a member of that place in a way that is it's difficult to do but it's possible. And I knew that like we weren't living in the place where we wanted our grandchildren to come visit us in. So I was like let's not waste any time. Let's just find that place now. I love it. And so we moved to the country. It's just south of Nashville. It's a few acres and about half of it's wooded and it has led me to it's it's why my arms are sore right now is because yeah. once you once you kind of join yourself to a property the property starts demanding things of you <laughs> that you don't always want to do but it it actually deepens your love for the place and yeah. so after 12 years of living there you know i've become a better gardener and have learned the names of lots of flowers that I wouldn't have known otherwise and Dang. started keeping bees and, you know, you've got chickens. And it makes it sound like I'm some, you know, monkish existence, but it's not, I don't know that I could handle living in the middle of nowhere like Wendell Berry does. Yeah. I actually like the fact that we're in 20 minutes from downtown Nashville. Yeah, it's huge. And so I, I like the fact that we're living in a city, but we, but we also have, we feel like we're on this in this little oasis of trees mm. in the middle of it. It's amazing. So I have a really good friend who's way smarter than me and a bit of a theologian. He talks about being in right relationship with God, with each other, and with the land. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that we think about or talk about very much. We're all living, generally speaking, in concrete jungles or suburban hideaways. Right. And I do think there's this growing movement towards the land, this desire to be, you know, occasionally, even if it's just once a day for five minutes, putting your feet on soil and dirt, not constantly living, you know, a few feet away from it on concrete. Yeah. And we kind of forget some of the most basic human principles, the more yeah. we're separated from, from yeah, the world that, is, that has been created for us to tend to yeah. and cultivate, you know? Well, I, I've said this many times, but the the they say that there's two books of revelation. There's yeah. scripture and there's nature. And I so the idea that if you, the idea is that if you want to know what God is like, read your Bible. Yeah. And also pay attention to the world that he made. Mm-hmm. And there's no... I don't think better way to pay attention to that world, to creation itself, than having a tiny little plot of, to even if it's four foot by four foot, you learn something about God by digging your hands in the dirt and growing tomatoes, whatever it may be. You just will, and it's a way of knowing that you can't know any other way, That's right? right? And so, some and this is stuff that I've talked about before. Sorry if you're at home and you've heard me blab about this, but I get excited about it. But the it helped me th- out of a depression. Like I was in about a two, maybe three year season of depression. And it was a lot of being angry at God, feeling like he was killing something in me 
or I felt like something in me was dying and that it was his fault. Wow. And it felt like the, the I remember describing it like it felt like he was like ripping me open and mm-hmm. I didn't understand why. And then I was went out to, kind of as a, the upswing out of this season of depression happened to coincide with springtime. And I went out into the, the back garden to plant seeds or to plant plants. I forget what it was, but I had my trowel and I literally ripped the earth open. Wow. It was not just a metaphor. You know what I mean? Like I mm. was actually wounding the earth, mm. not because I was angry with it, not because I was trying to hurt it, but because I wanted something good to grow. Wow. And so it was like, oh, that's what you're doing. Mm. Like you're, you're, if he wounds you, he's only doing it because he's, he's growing something new. If something is dying in you, then that thing needs to die. Yeah. But, it, but he, he does that in order to make room for other things. So, you know, in John, I forget which 14 maybe where, where Jesus says, talks about pruning the vine, you yeah. know, he's like, you'll take off these branches and I have grapevines and have pruned them and it is violent. Mm but it's the only way to get good fruit. And so it's not because he's mad at you. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's right. So that was tremendously helpful. And it was just because I learned to pay more attention to the revelation of nature, mm. right? The scripture and nature together are what made me go, okay, he loves me. I, wow. I think I, I get it now in a way that I didn't before. It's got to be some of what Resurrection Letters is about too. Well, Resurrection Letters is kind of like, the 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 full springtime after that season Mm -hmm. so the there was light for the lost boy was an album that i didn't realize i was writing at the on the brink of a depression when i look back at it i'm like oh my gosh i'm like every song is about the loss of innocence and all the stuff that i was saying and then i went into it and then wrote the burning edge of dawn was the album that I wrote kind of as the sun was coming up at the end of that long season. So it was really fresh. And then Resurrection Letters is just about all about spring, Mm. which it felt so good. Like, I can't tell you how profoundly moving it was when I was on tour a year after the depression, singing songs about having been in it Mm. and realizing that those songs weren't where I was anymore. That's right. It was like, like, I don't, I, I don't, like depression, I don't know if you've ever struggled with this before, but like, like, and I don't know if it was a clinical depression or how it all, that's that's all I know to call it. But it doesn't end like with a flash of realization or yeah. for me, it, it I realized it was over when, when I was talking about it in the past tense. Mm. I remember one day I just went, oh, wow. I just said this thing that I went through instead of the thing that I'm in. Wow. And that was when I realized that whatever, whatever season I was in was over. And it's not to say I won't, you know, enter into another dark forest. But That's right. um, but Re- Resurrection Letters was such a gift to get to sing only about the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of spring. And I just was so ready. I was so tired of singing sad yeah, songs. Yeah, no kidding. It's so, amazing. It's a coming out of the tomb sort of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose that so much of life, especially the Christian life, you're constantly cycling through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, I don't think you even have to be a Christian to understand that life is a cycle of suffering, a cycle of of hope and joy amidst sorrow and pain and confusion. Mm-hmm. I think is a real need to be constantly reminding ourselves and the world that if you're in a dark spot, consolation will come, light will come. Mm-hmm. You'll be out of that forest eventually. Yeah. In fact, that's very much part of the conversation I want to have about wing feather. For those who don't know, Andrew Peterson, as far as I can see it, is about the only person who's not only writing music and putting out some of the most beautiful, poetic, lyrical albums that are, that are you know, 
certainly being celebrated in this town and far beyond, but you're also an author. Before we get into that, I just have one last question. Let's say tomorrow or maybe even tonight, you go home and somehow you realize you've you've won the lottery. You're probably not the gambling type. I don't know if you ever, <laughs> I've never even bought a lottery ticket myself, but if, if, if you went home tonight and found out you had $10 million, this is like a Forbes magazine question. They ask all their employees, what, what would you do? What would I do with yeah, the Yeah, and let's say you've got to spend it within six months to a year, yeah. and none of it's spent on yourself. What wow. would you do with it? I, w- I can't hear that question without thinking about The Three Amigos. Do you remember yeah. that movie, The Three Amigos, <laughs> when they're all lying in the bed together, Martin Short and Steve yeah. Martin, Chevy Chase, they're like, what are you going to do with your cut of the money? And he's like, I'm going to buy a giant camper, and I'm going to whatever, and it gets to Martin Short, and he was like, well, I'm thinking of opening an orphanage, and the other two go, oh, well, I meant after the orphanage. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I, it, it is a real joy to be able to give money away. Mm. You know, we, we're not like hurting right now, but we, we have experienced some really lean years as a self-employed singer songwriter in Nashville, as you can imagine. And so who knows, it could all go away tomorrow, whatever. So you just kind of end up living with this, whatever. But I have, it is, it is a real joy to be able to say to someone, I want to help you. Mm. meet that need whatever so i without being sanctimonious or what i don't know if that's the right word i i really would get a kick out of like finding people doing kingdom work and yeah and helping people do it the little selfish part of me would love a little cottage in england <laughs> <laughs> you were just in england by the way i saw I was, that yeah a couple I, weeks I ago three weeks there. ago yeah europe in general is just a oh, pretty wonderful place to be for me it's a it's an overlap of all of so many of my favorite things can we just talk about it for a second yeah, sure. i just got back from two weeks in alton england which is you know three hours north of london okay kind of in the Midlands, not too far from Birmingham, not mm-hmm. too far from Manchester. And I was helping out with a camp that happens to take place at a castle there mm-hmm. and has been something I've done every August for the last five years. So studied abroad in London, realized I was an Anglophile. Mm-hmm. That's when I was introduced to Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien, all of the yeah, greats. Yeah. What has been your story with England? Is this a, a, yeah. a recent long-term thing, lifelong thing? Well, I it started it started with Sweden. I was I remember getting to play in Sweden. I'm a Peterson, so my great grandfather was a Swedish immigrant, and I I vaguely knew that. I, my dad knew it better than I did, but I called him and I was like, "Hey, I'm, I'm, I have a show in Sweden. Are we Swedish?" <laughs> and he was kind of like, "Well, yeah, your grandpa, you know, grew up in a home that spoke Swedish, you know." And so I, I kind of geeked out and I went over there and just fell in love with it for a lot of reasons. Not, Dang. not only because, you know, it would, it would be like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to put it, but I just felt it felt familiar to me mm. in, in a way that was pretty cool. And, and I really loved being there. And and for whatever reason, they liked me too. And so I've done, I think, 12 tours in Sweden. That's crazy. Since then. So I've, I've made some dear, dear friends over there. I'm actually going to be there in about like three weeks and going back to play. But, but being in Europe in general, it was so, I like old things, mm-hmm. you know, so seeing there's castles in Sweden and old villages and there's like a, a, a beauty to the land that I really love. And England to me is like, being in Europe with no language barrier. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Sweden is wonderful, but after a while, I feel so bad that I don't speak Swedish. I'm yeah. always having to apologize for not knowing Swedish. And then you get to England and you get a lot of the cool, or Britain, or even Ireland, but the you get the the thrill of being in Europe 
and you you can understand everything. You can mm. read all the street signs. That's you know? right. And so that also meant used bookstores. It mm. meant that I could go to used bookstores. And, <laughs> and it, like it was, uh, it's so sad in, in other European countries, I'd be like, ooh, there's a used bookstore. I'm not going to be able to read anything oh, that's in there. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just loved it. And part of it, I think, too, is growing up an American kid that read Robin Hood and King mm. Arthur and Lord of the Rings and the Narnia books and yeah. uh, Harry Potter. And mm. like, oh, there's so many great stories are just kind of steeped in that culture that I, I'm, I, I feel like a kid when I'm there. Totally. Yeah. So. so there's this church I fell in love with in London called the Brompton Oratory. And this is when I was studying abroad 13 years ago, I'm embarrassed to admit. And I found not too far across the street, this oldies bookstore you know, England's not exactly a, a hotbed of faith at the moment, right? And therefore, a lot of the philosophy and theology books that I would have been really interested in at the time were like in the basement on the two or three quid book rack. Right. And yeah. I walked out of there with first edition Chesterton's, first edition Lewis, uh, a copy of The Great Divorce, oh, first edition. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I actually just gave my Chesterton book away, <laughs> uh, trying to keep detached from it all, you know? But Good luck. I love that yeah. you love books. I love that you love history, that you love beauty. The thing that is most kind of mesmerizing to me at the moment is, is how you can go from a love for the land, a love for the faith, uh, a love for music, even a love for literature to then coming up with a four part saga that even as recently as this past week, I just discovered there's, there's more. And maybe that means there's more to come. I know you're about to do a, a hardback edition of mm -hmm. all four, probably yeah. in, in the series, which mm -hmm. is gonna be beautiful and so exciting and a great way to represent this story to the world, Super but pumped. just know that like I didn't get through any one of these books without crying at least twice. I was right there alongside the characters in a way that has only happened a few other times. Lord of the Rings, Narnia. There's a few other series that I've been into that I'll probably never read twice. Years mm. I'll have to read probably every five years until I wow. die. Thank you. So, you know, I don't want to like overstate it, but you've got a, a tremendous gift here. How in the world did you discover that amidst everything else going on in your the life? Was it this thing. burning <laughs> desire? What was it? Thank you, first of all. That's very kind of you. I'm I'm glad that you resonated with the books. I mean, I was sharing I, moments from your book with young people in England all over the country back in March. Oh, I was doing amazing. this school tour and I kept talking about specifically Sarah and her revolution of love. Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, we're living in, in a terribly unaffirmed, unloved culture, like young people especially, you know. And I'm sitting there trying to describe this fork factory to them. <laughs> and they're like practically in tears by the end too, you That's know? That's amazing. Um, um, I'm a bit of an evangelist at this point thank for, you. for the, the series. Thank you. Well, I would say, you know, like I said, I grew up a little bit of, nerdy, of a nerdy kid. and Your beard says otherwise. Uh, hey, thanks. Thanks. I've been, I didn't add my beard oil today. <laughs> I should have. Um, I wanted to write books before I found music. Wow. And so it was like, I was always drawing. I was way into comic books, movie. Like I'm a Spielberg kid, you know? Yeah. So I grew up with E.T. and Goonies and all that kind of stuff. That was Goonies. That was him. Anyway, the point is, it was like that, the Stranger Things, that, that was me in many ways. And so only I wasn't allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons because in the South, at least back then in the 80s, D&D &D was like the most evil thing you could do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it like Playboy was down here somewhere, but D&D &D was like way out there. And so I was, What the irony is like the pastor at our church is a dungeon master and he leads campaigns <laughs> with people. And it's like everybody's realized, oh, we were, we were on a witch hunt. So anyway, I, but I, I loved that stuff. There was something about, I was really hungry for, you know, anything that had a dwarf and a dragon and a tavern or whatever, there was something in it that appealed to me and I was so hungry for it. 
and this was before I discovered Lord of the Rings. It, it was yeah. before I discovered that there was a literary version of that, mm -hmm. right? And so it was like the accoutrements of fantasy, which I think a lot of people are into. Like, oh, if it's got elves and whatever, I'm in. And I try to read those books, and it's really hard for me. Yeah. It's hard to find it because the prose is so lame. Or the story feels empty somehow, which is why it's such a— we should be so thankful for Tolkien and Lewis and— the Godfather, well, really Longer and yeah, you know, there's so there's there's good ones yeah. out there, but they're hard to find. But and, and they tend, you know, there's usually some element of faith that gives them the the sight that they need to tell the story the in their depth, own way. Yeah. The horizon, you're right, it's empty yeah. otherwise. We'll be back in just a moment with Andrew Peterson. All right, y'all. So as promised, here is the big announcement for the episode this week on the podcast. Andrew Peterson has not only been most recently featured in our package to patrons as an author, he's now about to be featured again as a singer-songwriter, as an artist. Okay, so his Behold the Lamb of God Christmas album has been entirely re-recorded. It's featuring everybody from Jess Ray to Scott Mulvihill, okay? And our highest level patrons of 50 and $100 a month patrons are going to get that album on vinyl as part of their December package. So if you want to upgrade, if you've been sitting there at that $25 a month level on the fence, wanting to upgrade, wanting the coffee, wanting more, but not really having the excuse, today's your day. So just email us at info at lovegoodculture.com. We'll get you upgraded right away to make sure that you get this Christmas vinyl by the time our packages go out in just a few weeks. But also for everyone out there who's like, Jimmy, I don't have $50 to spare every month. I don't even hardly have $10 to spare every month. Well, I've got also a very exciting announcement for you. For the first time ever in the last few weeks, we've been talking about this, but this is the first big push that we're going to have since really announcing this new level of patronage for $5 a month. You can get full access to all of our digital content, okay, specifically the long-form videos of every podcast episode. You get talks from Love Good Academy, normally only available to our apprentices. Those are in video form as well. And you get access to all of our secret house concerts and live streams. So if you live here in Nashville, that's very convenient. You can come to all of our house concerts, but everybody else gets to really sit front row as we live stream them from the comfort of your living room, whether you are in the car, hopefully not driving with your phone, but watching on your phone, the live stream or anywhere else you can access these concerts. So it's a, a love good exclusive to our patrons. And uh, by the way, if you sign up at a $5 a month level, this week and this week only, you get the full welcome package, okay? The, the same exclusive t-shirt that goes to all of our high-level patrons, an album, a book, a magnet, maybe something else I'm not even thinking of. So basically, this is the week of 2019 to sign up for $5 a month. Go to lovegoodculture.com slash five, just the number five, and uh, get signed up today. You guys are amazing. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. And so, but, so the way that I have described it before is that it was almost like all the terrible fantasy novels I was reading were like composting mm. and getting the soil ready for the invasion of the gospel story, Crazy, right? And yeah. so it was like not just Lord of the Rings, but also the Bible actually felt more alive to me, I think, because my imagination had been tended to by stories of espionage and prophecies mm. and 
daring escapes, all that kind of stuff. It was, it was all there in scripture all along. And so it, it was fantasy that kind of was the doorway for that stuff. There. So yeah. all that to say, I, I tried writing some books in high school and realized in like maybe ninth or 10th grade that girls were more interested in guitar players than mm. fantasy novelist, comic book <laughs> illustrators. And so I abandoned that stuff and did music and then in college reread the Narnia books and just... They just leveled me, and and as in, and I think the Narnia books are best experienced, not as a kid reading them, and not as a grown up reading them, but as a grown up reading them to a kid. Wow! So I think that in the process of reading aloud to a child, you are kind of entering their world and experiencing it through their eyes, yeah. but it's still you're old enough to realize what's going on. And man, it just so I remember not long after I read it to my kids, I went to my wife and was like you know that book I'm always talking about writing? Like, it's time. Wow. And so, yeah, anyway, I, I, the books got better as they went. Like, it was, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed. Like, you know, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed of book one, but book one, when I, when I look at it, which isn't very often, I'm always like, ooh, man, I was still, still finding my sea legs. <laughs> so I always make that disclaimer to people like, please don't give up on me. Like, it gets better, I promise. So. Well, you're setting the stage too. And, and frankly, that's a little bit how a lot of series have felt to me. You know, Lord of the Rings, for example, it took me, three attempts to get past the halfway point of book one. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think that's sort of the, the the modern sort of struggle we all have to even mm. just keep an attention span yeah. past 144 characters on Twitter, totally. you know? yeah. And I really do think there was something about, you know, Tyler Summers' voice in the back of my head saying something like what you just said, like, hey, book one sets the stage. You got to plow through because your mind and your heart are going to be blown open. Oh, man. Two, Thanks. three, and four. And that was totally my experience. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. I've been talking about it ever since in a kind of embarrassing way. I get really into things. I, th I think it's a lot of us. Hmm. You know, apart from hardback editions, apart from the fact that our patrons are getting the last, you know, 600 copies of this, at least this particular edition, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure we were like really close to yeah. buying out the last of the stock. It's amazing. You know, what's next for you in literature, you in fiction? Is this the beginning of a continued career in writing? I mean, it's been 11 years now since the, the first since book the came first out. Since the first book came out, yeah. Um, what's the hope for the future? Well, I have I have a nonfiction book coming out in October called Adorning the Dark, and it's kind of a memoir about the creative process. Mm. And so written to encourage people who feel discouraged Amazing. And in whatever kind of creativity they do. So October, it's, that's, that's soon. Yeah, it's pretty soon. Amazing. Yeah. So that's coming out. That took a few years to write. And I'm mo way more nervous about that coming out than that because I can't hide behind fiction. Isn't that um, funny? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was hard, hard to write nonfiction. But it's hopefully helpful. Like a lot of it's very confessional. This is what's going on inside your brain when you're trying to make something mm. as a way of saying you're not crazy if you're feeling – or you are crazy, but you're not the only one mm. <laughs> if you're feeling these things. But then also, you know, just some practical – advice opinions about hey here's a way to do it that worked for me so so that's coming out what else is happening the 20th anniversary of behold the lamb of god the christmas tour is this year so we re-recorded that album wow kind of reimagined a couple songs and are about to release that and then and so all of those things are kind of buying me a little bit of time to try to write another book that's wow. that's my i just had a meeting with my manager a few days ago and i'm really eager to figure out what my next fiction thing is. I loved the process of writing these books. Like it was a lot of work, a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, but when I when I think about my happiest times 
kind of like doing creative stuff. Yeah. It's, it was like the feeling of working really hard on a chapter and then coming home and reading it to my kids wow. at night. And like, it scratches the same itch as music, but I don't have to leave home. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? I can kind of like sit in my little introverted world. Do you have like an epic log cabin out back? Kind of, yeah. He's got a pretty great little spot. That's where Scott Mulvihill and I hang out sometimes. <laughs> but you know what? Sometimes it's just a coffee house down the road. Yeah. But then, so I can't wait to try something else and I don't know what it's going to be yet. It's amazing. But the Wingfeather Saga is done. Yeah, okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Conclusive. It is done. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I would like to point out because it's something we talk about all the time is the power that beauty has to heal, to redeem, you know, ultimately, we've all heard this quote from Dostoevsky a million times, beauty will save the world. It's this great talk by a Franciscan. His name is Father Canta La Mesa. He has the, the strange privilege of being the, the preacher to the papal household. You ever heard of this guy? No, I didn't know there Canta was Canta La Mesa thing. means sing the mass. So he's already probably this kind of fairly artistic guy who has been preaching to popes since like the late 70s. Wow. He's getting old. I don't <laughs> know how much of a runway he's got left. But he said that when Dostoevsky was you know, bring that line out in the idiot, you know, it wasn't the, the love of beauty with the beauty of love that mm. will save the world, you wow. know? And I see that so much in Lily. It's not Lila, it's Lily, right? Lily, yeah. Okay. You have a daughter named Sky, mm -hmm. who I think is friends with some of the um, families I know really well. And I just, I had to find out how to pronounce it. And uh -huh. I think they eventually got the information from Sky. So I don't know why, I just was yeah. like Lily for the longest time in my head, but Lily it is. And like the way that she allowed her music, the beauty of her gift to even like push back evil. I mean, there was no more powerful weapon as the the, the, the narrative was escalating, you know, mm. and there was some risk of maybe evil winning. Like you, you had me on the edge of my seat, you know, but I loved the role that she played. And I love mm. the role that beauty plays in the work of redeeming culture, engaging and redeeming it rather than running away, mm. rather than holding up and thinking that we've got to somehow create a subculture, be ready to go in and, and, and really transform secular society from the inside out. Hmm. Beauty has that power. And you see that in a lot of different forms. What inspired that? I mean, is it a similar thought process in you that huh. led to her kind of irrepeatable role in the series? Well, I think, I was going to say, by the way, that beauty as an apologetic is a really intriguing idea to me. Like, mm. I'm, I'm always, I want to know. Like what people who don't like materialists, like yeah. how do you explain beauty? How do you explain yeah. our compulsion to make it and our reaction to it? Right. Like there's, there's always like a, there's always mystery. You know what I mean? When, Dang, when it comes yeah. to like beauty and the way that it surprises us, like I, you know, Lewis talked about Seinsucht, which if you don't know the word, it's this great little German word that's, I think, untranslatable, but S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. And Lewis talked about it, and he describes it as an inconsolable longing. Wow. And so this feeling of longing that kind of catches you off guard, right? Yeah. I, I, I've done some talks where I, I talk about it a little bit, and the I've never had the audience look at me with confusion when I bring that up. <laughs> and I'm like, you know the feeling where you're like, you don't really understand why, but just out of nowhere, you just feel this terrible longing that's painful and yeah. wonderful at the same time. Yeah. I think everybody knows that if they're honest with themselves, mm -hmm. everybody knows that feeling. What is that? Yeah, You know what I mean? And beauty, a lot of times is the doorway through which that kind of surprises yes. us. So I'm always intrigued. Like, I, I just don't understand how you explain what beauty is and what it does to us, apart from the fact that there is this great beauty 
beyond the veil, mm. right? That, that the source of all beauty is kind of calling to us through it. Yeah. So it went back to the wing feather saga, like one of my favorite things to do on the Christmas tour is we do this Christmas tour every year where it's a group of songwriters on the road. Right. And you've seen the show, but like Andy Gullihorn, Jill Phillips, and a few other special guests will sing in the round for the first half of the show. The second half, we play through this Christmas record. First half of the show is like, I get to introduce the audience to these people that I, whose music I love. So Ellie was, Ellie Holcomb was on the tour one year. And one of my favorite things is when I'm, after I've introduced them, I sit back kind of just outside the edge of the lights and I watch the audience watch my friends play their songs, yeah. right? And so I I love, and the audience doesn't know that I can see them. It's a little stalkerish, I guess. <laughs> but I'm on the stage, they're out there. And so, but I've seen, I've seen a change happen in people yeah. in three and a half minutes with a song. It's amazing. Like I, I, I don't know any other art form that works quite like that, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. people are willing to pay money to go and listen to a poem, sort of. Yeah. And give them, open themselves up to it, right? That's right. And you'll see somebody, I've seen somebody kind of move from being a little fidgety and disinterested to engaged to by the end of the song crying. Yeah, that's right. And I'm like, what is going on there, you know? It's part of why I love songwriting mm. and art in general, but songs in particular are just this really concentrated span of time that can change you, right? Mm. I think most of us have that moment. We can remember a song grabbing you and not really letting go. And so that's a kind of magic, right? It is. It really and so, is. so in the Wing Feather books, I kind of imagined that that Lily, that that music was a power that could push back, mm. literally at at evil. There's actually a passage where Nia says, you know, oh, I can't remember exactly how she puts it, but she talks about how the world is brimming with magic. Yeah. There's magic all around. Chesterton talked about that. He mm. was like, we need fairy tales to tell us that apples are purple mm. so that we'll remember how amazing it is that they're red yeah right, that's right. so you kind of like the, the world is full of all of this stuff. god's always doing this anyway so in these books i just kind of was like well what happens if if there's a there are some times that leadley plays a song and it actually like flattens the enemy mm. and so but she can't control it which yeah. is another thing that's like songwriting because mm. they, when they try to wield it it doesn't always work right they'll be like play the song oh it's not working right. why isn't it working which I've experienced that with songs too. There are times when you sing a song and you feel like you just completely ruined it. <laughs> and that's when people say, you know, God spoke to me through the whatever. And other times you think you nailed it and nobody says a word. Isn't that crazy? So it's the Holy Spirit's kind of always moving. Yeah. And all you, have, all you can do is be willing to play the song when he asks you to. That's right. And I suppose that's the lesson for the world, for all the non-artists out there, that to have that posture of receptivity, to be always willing and in some ways, like detached from the outcome, mm -hmm. you know? And I love how, you know, it took a toll on her, blood included. It was completely exhaustive for her, that, mm -hmm. that gift of self through the gift that she had been given. Well, I want to close with just one last question. Obviously, we're living in one of the greatest creative capitals in the world. We're surrounded by not only brilliant artists a lot of the time, but really sincere Christians who really care about culture and want to be a part of bringing the world back you know, to its senses, back to what it really means to, to be human, to be family, to be community. And, you know, I think about Charlie Peacock and what he was doing with the art house mm -hmm. uh, a few years back and what you guys are doing with the rabbit room, what we're doing with Love Good, our patrons, our young people, the artists that we've come alongside. Uh, there does seem to be something happening really uh, across the world. I see little pockets of it, but there's a, a special synergy here in Nashville. I'm curious, you know, what is your hope when you look out at the next 50 years, when you think about 
your kids and eventually your grandkids. What are your hopes for the future of culture? <laughs> big question. That is a big, <laughs> that is a huge question. Well, so I can tell you what I have had to do as a kind of self-preservation over the years is like, you know, in, a lot of us who get into to creative work, we're, we're doing it because we have these high hopes for what will happen. You know, like you want to see your song change a lot of people and, and it tends to be like a quantity, quantitative way of looking at it. Uh, but Flannery O'Connor, you know, she talked about how it's none of her business really what God does with her story, <laughs> right? She was just trying to be obedient. She was very content to be misunderstood. Yeah. In a way, this is blue, blue, it, I can't do that. So refreshing. I really want to be understood. I want to be liked. And, <laughs> but she had this gift to tell her stories and throw them out there into the world and just let the Holy Spirit do what he would do, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's all we can do. Mm. So the rabbit room, I think Charlie with Art House, like, you know, we're building this building here in Nashville that could be a center for kind of that community. Mm. And my hunch is that the relationships that are born and the friendships that that grow out of it, the little moments over a shared meal mm. are in God's economy far more important than hit songs or yeah. whatever. And so faithfully serving with little things is I think the the only thing we can really do. So of course your hope is that like those little things strung together will shape culture but i think that's what the church has always done yeah you know I, I wonder if sometimes civilization would have vanished long ago if it wasn't for the presence of the church and ways that we can't trace we don't even know but we, there there have been faithful christians you know it's like god keeps making poets that's right he keeps making songwriters he keeps making painters like there are people who are still telling their story the best that they can and sometimes they die before their books ever published like gerard manley hopkins you know yeah. like but he just faithfully tended what he was given and I'll close with this. I just told the story earlier today. I was at a Paul, Paul Simon's farewell tour, came through Nashville earlier this year, maybe last year. It was at the arena. I'm a huge Paul Simon fan. So if you're a songwriter, you kind of have to be. But at the end of his show, they do the, they did the thing where they showed like the montage of him and Art Garfunkel in black and white playing Sound of Silence and then Bridge Over Troubled Water and then Graceland. Mm. They were just all of this staggering amount of work right that this guy had done and he's in the arena and we're all singing and crying and uh, experiencing this tremendous art that god gave him to make and so i always I like it it's happened when i've seen james taylor and other bands like i'm sitting in the audience and i've got a little bit of envy <laughs> i'm sitting there thinking what would it have been like if i had tried to do like the mainstream thing what, yeah. what if i had tried to do this instead of what i'm doing and it's a, it's a, not a good feeling and so I remember feeling that. I was in the arena with Paul Simon, just imagining what it would feel like to have that many people every night. You know, when people say things like, Bruce Springsteen, he's like 200 years old. How does he do shows every night? I was like, well, it's easy when the crowd loves you from the second you walk on the stage. Yeah, yeah. It's hard when you ha have to win them over night after night because, you know, sometimes they don't know who you are. That's right. You got to keep telling the story, whatever. So I, I tell you all that to say that I was... I came, like the day after the Paul Simon show, I flew to Colorado and did a show. And it was like maybe 150 people in this really cool venue there. But on the flight to Colorado, I got to the part in The Lord of the Rings. I was reading it for the fourth time, <laughs> which was my favorite reading, by the way. So reread it. <laughs> if you haven't read it, read it. But in the, there's the moment at the end of 
when Sam thinks that Frodo's dead, he thinks that Shelob has killed Frodo. So Sam takes the ring and he's in Mordor and he's like, well, I guess I've got to complete the mission, right? Mm -hmm. And so little Sam, who's a gardener from the Shire, doesn't really have any high hopes or whatever. Suddenly he's tempted mm -hmm. and the ring begins to work on his heart. And it talks about how Sam imagines himself a lord of armies and how, you know, he would be the commander of, mm. me, of men. And he looks out, this is the most amazing part, is that he looks out at Mordor and sees just the waste of it all. And he says, yeah, if I was in charge, I would turn this whole thing into a green valley, you know? And he's just imagining himself wielding this power of creation. And then it says, when he thought about gardening, his hobbit sense returned to him. Yeah. And he remembered his little garden back of the Shire. And he realized that he didn't want to be in charge of, you know, armies. He just wanted to be in charge of his own two hands. And he didn't want to turn all of Mordor into a green valley. He just wanted to tend his garden at the Shire. And it was like God had arranged for that exact moment to happen. And then I walked out into my little garden of mm -hmm. 150 people and played and I was just like overwhelmed. I was wow. like, oh, do I want, like, so the point is, and I think this is Tolkien's insight is that Sam wanted to do a good thing, right? But if it wasn't his calling, it was a bad thing. That's right. If it wasn't what he was, it wasn't for him to do that, right? It was like power that God has. What he has given us to do is to tend our little garden. That's mm. what we're called to. And so it kind of changed my thinking. It was it was a nice corrective for that feeling of envy. I was like, man, like, do I want to be a commander of armies or do I want to live in the Shire? We all want to live in the Shire, right? Yeah. Like that's like this beautiful thought of us having, knowing what our boundaries are. And that's what Wendell Berry talks about a lot. Mm. Caring for getting to know the names of the trees and the names of the birds and your names of your neighbors and loving faithfully in small ways. And those small things are breadcrumbs, I think, that lead to the kingdom. Yeah. And so that's what I hope for culture. You know, mm. I just, I don't know about culture. I, I can't think in those abstract terms. All I know is like, I want my kids to know what a good family is like. I want my yeah. neighbors to know who Jesus is because that is the garden that we grow best in. Mm. Amen. I feel like I'm just walking out of an hour-long spiritual direction. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and yeah, on behalf of all of our listeners and our patrons, thank you. Yeah. There's an, there's an indebtedness that I feel whenever I'm sitting down with somebody who just so freely and lovingly and personally shares from life experience, suffering, joy, and wisdom. And you've done that in a really profound way. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for um, having me. Andrew, I hope this is the, the first of many to come. Me too. Therefore God exalted him the place of highest praises and he gave him a name above every name that in the very name of Jesus Son of God we would sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God but he made himself nothing well he gave up his pride and he came here to die like a As always, y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. What a joy sitting down with Andrew. I really do hope that that's the first of many to come. And I'm just waiting for my invite over to his his home that he calls the Warren, you know, to smoke pipes and talk theology and Tolkien and all the things. So anyways, thanks y'all so much for being a part of that conversation. As we have said many times before, this is as close as we can come to sitting down over a cup of coffee with you and our artists every week. And it means the world that you not only 
tune in and listen to this beautiful Love Good podcast, but that you also share it with family and friends. So please take this episode link, not only share it on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but also just talk about it and let people know they can find the Love Good podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, really everywhere podcasts are found. And just one last reminder, if you're sitting on the fence, this is your week to become a Love Good patron at the lowest level ever and still get the full welcome package for free. That's lovegoodculture.com slash five. Subscribe as a patron today. You not only get a lot of amazing free stuff, you're investing in the arts, you're investing in culture, you're placing your vote for the future of our society by rallying around artists that you know are rooting themselves in truth and beauty and goodness. That's what we're about. We cannot wait to uh, really keep rallying and standing alongside the masses of you all over the world who, who do believe that a better culture is possible and that we can build it. All right, you guys are the best. Next week, I'll be sitting down with a couple of our house directors in the Love Good Apprenticeship Program, Tommy and Lauren, to hear all about what it really looks like to be lifelong apprentices, right? To be constantly in that state of becoming that allows us to be hungry for more. And they're gonna tell some pretty hilarious and just beautiful stories about this particular year of apprentices that we have living here in Nashville as a part of Love Good. So um, come back next week. As always, new episodes every Tuesday. You guys are amazing. We'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. Tell your friends all about us. Follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Start enjoying our exclusive content and seasonal packages that will raise your standard for music, books, and art and inspire you to build a better culture. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.